Let's sit. Let's learn. Let's evolve. Let's talk. No more whispering in our minds. Today, we're listening to Let's Talk Black Power, a show about all the ways that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people resist, refuse, transform and reimagine. And in this, the 20th year of Let's Talk, this is your host, Ruby Warden. Yama, you're listening to 98.9 Murray Radio and we are broadcasting from the sovereign unceded lands of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. My name is Ruby Wharton. I'm a Gomeroy Kuma Mariyena and your host for Let's Talk Black Power. Today, you're going to be hearing an amazing webinar called We Charge Genocide, with, facilitated by Dr. Jamal Nabulsi. You're about to hear from amazing Palestinian speakers. So I hope you mob enjoy this yarn and I hope that you guys stick around for the rest of 2024. Let's Talk Black Power. So- as Anna just said, my name's Ruby Wharton. I'm a Gomorrah Kumamrati Yina. My mobs come from Kunamala in southwest Queensland and we wore Narrabri area in northwest New South Wales. I've been a Brisbane Black my whole life and been a little rat bag organiser turned into somewhat of a baby seeking academic. But um, I, I spend a lot of my time around organising and working within the prison abolition space and advocating on the rights of First Nations peoples, not only here on this continent, but also evidently everywhere around the world that is linked to a globalisation or colonialism. Um, we've heard, I guess, um, in recent days, we've recent weeks, recent times, we've heard a lot about globalisation as a, as a theory and um, where we sit here as First Nations people is um, we're over 200 years into being colonised and living in the colony that is so-called Australia. And what we understand about living in the colony in 2024 is that genocide doesn't just stop with the frontier. Genocide continues to manifest and grow in really, really dangerous ways. Um, and in the context of Palestine, and those that are standing in solidarity with a free Palestine, we are hearing really, really interesting discourse. And I know that in the Southern Hemisphere, it's, it, it's extremely, extremely very different to what we see in the rest of the world and what other people will see in the rest of the world. Um, this is a very unique decision, a very unique moment in history where we're seeing uh, peoples that have experienced the genocide seeking their homelands to return. However, within that same breath, uh, murdering, martyring hundreds of thousands of children and women and disabled folk and people who are just seeking to live life. Um, and it's really, really polarizing coming up to now we are in January and every January means that we're gearing up for the January 26th and we're hearing a lot of really nasty commentary everywhere, every which way. And I, I know that I'm rambling a little bit right now, but it's extremely important that First Nations folk and other POC in, are very, very informed on settler colonialism, colonization and globalization, because it very much impacts our, our positioning right now here with standing in solidarity with Palestine. I don't know, um, some of you may have seen a couple of First Nations people in the last couple of weeks and 
days say some really inappropriate stuff and just not necessary stuff and stuff that is very very woefully ignorant um where they it's just not a fact it doesn't matter it's there are people that are dying colonization and globalization is the is the curse of that and it is our responsibility as first nations peoples as peoples who have also experienced genocide and are still fighting for sovereignty and our autonomy to be self-determined peoples it is it is imperative that we stand up right now especially as we come into invasion day and that we bring the nakba to the neck to the invasion that is the imperative moment that is the pinnacle of history that we are at and it is it is the responsibility of First Nations people and any other POC settler here on these lands to stand up not only for Palestine, but for people in the Congo, for people in, for everybody that is experiencing genocide. Globalization and colonization are the basis of our existence here and the basis of our politics and the, our, our positionings and our perspectives. So it's, it would be woefully ignorant of us to not be advocating for Palestine and for, it would be an opportunity missed if First Nations organizers around the country didn't bring the Nakba to our invasion. I guess I'll leave it to the one and only Jamal. <laughs> Thanks so much for those, um, yeah, amazing, um, informative and inspiring words, um, Ruby. Um, so I'm Jamal Nabulsi. I'm a diaspora Palestinian writer and researcher, um, and I'm coming to you today from Yugambeh country, um, sovereignty over which was never ceded, uh, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So yeah, thanks so much everyone for joining us today for this conversation. Uh, and of course, massive thanks to uh, the organizers and, and the speakers. Um, so before we get into the, um, the, the panel discussion part, I just want to um, briefly contextualize what's happening in Palestine uh, right now. Um, so I think as probably many of you are well aware, if you're here, um, the Israeli regime is currently committing a genocide against Palestinians in Gaza, uh, especially. Israeli occupation forces um, are not only indiscriminately bombing Palestinians, uh, but actively targeting critical civilian infrastructure, including hospitals, schools, universities, refugee camps, um, and residential apartments. And even those who survived the bombing are far, far from safe at the moment. Um, the Israeli regime have drastically tightened their 17-year-long blockade on Gaza, uh, which leaves the 2.3 million Palestinian people who live there with severely limited access to clean water, food, electricity, and, uh, of course, critical medical supplies as well. And this is really just the continuing collective punishment of a people who dare to resist their colonization um, and express their indigenous sovereignty uh, with their land. And the Israeli regime is working not only to starve and slaughter Palestinians, but to further expel Palestinians from their land. Um, this has been made clear by many statements from Israeli officials and politicians, um, and even by uh, leaked documents, um, which clearly demonstrate their intention to um, transfer, as they say, which is just a euphemism for ethnic cleansing. Um, so to so-called transfer Gaza Palestinians um, 
to to Egypt or to basically any state that is willing to collude with Israel um, and and take in those those Palestinians. Um, and almost three quarters of those Palestinians in Gaza are already refugees from Israel's previous wars on Palestine. But while Israel's current genocide and ethnic cleansing is is certainly horrific and the scale of the the devastation is um you know almost unthinkable I think it's important to note that this kind of Israeli violence is nothing new for Palestinians uh, it's the violent continuation of Zionist settler colonialism which Palestinians have been resisting for over 76 years now in response to this current devastation South Africa uh, have filed a case against Israel in the International Court of Justice uh, charging them with the crime of genocide and it's this case that um, is going to be the focus of our discussion today I think that's uh, enough enough from me for now um, so I'll I'll hand over to to each of our wonderful speakers today uh, to just introduce themselves and tell us briefly and broadly about um, what brings them to the conversation um, today. So maybe start off with Amy, and if Amy, you want to just pass it over to the next person, and um, yeah, we'll go through like that. Oh, thank you, Jamal. Um, yeah, it's such a privilege and an honor to be asked to speak today. I'm a Durumbal and South Sea Islander from Rockhampton in central Queensland but currently speaking from Yagara land so I'd like to acknowledge the lands from which I'm speaking from today um, and worked as a journalist particularly in Aboriginal media for the past 17 or 18 years um, and I think what brought me really to understanding um, you know the continuing genocide because it's only it's not just the genocide that's happening now it's been a continuing genocide was really the um advocacy and testimony of a lot of Palestinian people over here um because the media weren't telling us that so as a journalist I wasn't seeing that reflected in any way and that's not you know not something you know mind-blowing to say um but just seeing the devaluation completely of Palestinian lives um, the silencing of Palestinian voices um, and even the conditions imposed in which Palestinians are even able to speak. So you can't talk about um, a Palestinian resistance, you can't talk about liberation and you can't talk about sovereignty. And those are things that we can't even talk about really over here as Aboriginal people. And so a lot of the work, you know, was, you know, similar to Ruby was around, you know, justice, um, abolition, looking at... Um, the violence inflicted upon Aboriginal women and the targeted violence, those are things that I see happening in occupied Palestine um, and have been happening over the past 75 years from the Nakba to the ongoing Nakba. And it's why I feel that this moment in time, just echoing Ruby as well, um, as Aboriginal people, it has shown us, it reveal, has revealed so much in relation to how colonial and genocidal violence is so interlinked across borders and across seas and everything like that. And it's such an important moment in history for us to stand up as a people and also, again, echoing Ruby, respond to the very you know minority of Aboriginal Zionists, which I think should be an oxymoron because, as Jamal just said, Zionism is distinctly colonial. Um, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, a land without people for a people without land. Like that's terra nullius to me as well. And so there are so many similarities and our struggles are interwoven with each, with each other's struggles and our resistance is interwoven with each other's resistance. 
Um, and so I think that's why I come here today, but particularly as well as a journalist, I just think it's so important to just completely resist in every single way the mainstream media's complicity in a genocide over the past 75 years and particularly what is happening today. And, you know, talking about, you know, the recent South African case um, in the International Court of Justice, like I just, I find it so hard to watch the mainstream media right now. I just, when I was watching like Al Jazeera in the South African case, and just following um, very shallowly the ABC's reporting, there was just nothing on it at all. Um, and so they are seeing this genocide as not even worth reporting on at this moment. And it's really, and they're not reporting on the protests that have continued for the past 17 weeks or so many weeks, which is just unbelievable to see the Australian, so many members of the Australian public stand up for Palestine, which has not happened before. And it is totally absent within the media. So the media is lying to the Australian public. Um, and they, and as we have seen, you know, just I'm rambling to now, as we have seen just in the past couple of days, just the lengths they go to to kowtow to Zionist lobbies. Um, and it's only people of colour, it's only Indigenous people who are ever um, impacted by um, this, by standing up and by resisting. Um, Ruba is on my right, so I don't know if I should pass to Ruba. Thanks, Amy. Um, and no, you are not rambling. You're uh, quite succinct, actually. Um, we could spend hours talking on this and the points of, uh, you know, uh, colonialism and Zionism and how they interact. Uh, I'm Ruba. I am, I've been working in the law since 2007. My ancestral background is Palestinian. So um, my father uh, in 1948 was a toddler who then became a refugee and his family had to flee to what is now known as the Gaza Strip. So, you know, like, uh, for me, this is more than just, um, this is personal. This is my family. This is my cousins and my uncles and my aunts who are experiencing this genocide right now. Um, and my mother's background is from uh, East Jerusalem in Silwan, which we saw became a hotspot uh, you know, in 2018, because of the forced annexation of that land and the homes there and the uh, Palestinian people struggle to try and, and save that land. Interestingly, um, as a child, I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I always knew that I was going to go to become a lawyer and go to Palestine. And because of South Africa's struggle against apartheid through the law, I was going to go to Palestine and I was going to emulate Pal uh, South African uh, lawyers and their um, fight against apartheid. And so uh, watching South Africa stand for us, you know, when they were my motivation to follow this career path has been uh, so inspiring and uh, and just so beautiful to see. Um, I can't I can't explain the joy or, or like the pride I felt when I when I saw them um, make the application. Uh, and one of my keen interests is international law and uh, human rights and international humanitarian, applied international humanitarian law within conflict zones. And I think that's what brings me to the conversation today. Sarah, I'll hand over to you. Thank you, Rabat. Can everyone hear me okay? And my computer is being a little bit um, funny. Thanks, Rabat. Sorry, I, I'm really moved by what you've said, and I'm just taking a moment to sit with that. Um, and what was said before, but uh, just when you brought up uh, your family um, 
a, a dear friend of mine lost her father this morning, he's Palestinian, and um, someone in the group chat messaged to say, oh, how devastating and heartbreaking it was that we have lost another Palestinian elder who's died far from homeland, far from country, and was never able to return. Um, but another dear friend, uh, Zena, who's uh, one of yours, Palestinian in um, Mianjin, said, uh, you know, may their grandchildren return. And that's what I've been hanging my hope on to this morning, today. Uh, in any case, my name is Sarah, and I am a uh, Palestinian, Egyptian, and Lebanese uh, poet, writer, um, human rights lawyer, legal advisor at the moment. And I'm coming to you from Bidjigal Land, otherwise known as Southwest Sydney. Uh, echoing everything that was said, uh, why am I here today? I think because of the fact that we have never seen such a scale of global solidarity for Palestine. And that is the thing that is emboldening me day in and day out. But I think having said that, you know, the cost that we have paid, the cost that we have seen has been far too high already. And we have a responsibility to those on the front lines in Gaza right now to do everything that we can, um, everything in our power to stop uh, the genocidal assault, to keep them all alive and to end these systems of injustice. And so for me, that looks like showing up here and channeling my anger, my grief, my love, my fear, my rage into, um, you know, action like this and to keep raising awareness and to keep moving people into action and i think that you know this teaching to which i'm so grateful for everybody to you know everyone who organized and everyone who showed up today you know this is what fuels the momentum to keep us going and what empowers us to really build and strengthen you know our movement uh that for me is of course grounded always in indigenous um the indigenous struggle for solidarity for justice here um and i understand you know that these struggles are related they're an extension of each other and in fighting against a genocide in Gaza we need to recognize that there's ongoing um colonial uh violence and genocide here and these are ultimately injustices perpetrated by global systems of violence and therefore our movement must be global uh I say that and I also want to end on just a reminder that our liberation will never be found in states, in governments, in courts, uh, with all due respect, which we will get to, but it'll be found in each other. Uh, uh, you know, it's not too late for us. It's not too late for people who are new to this to learn to speak out, to do something. And I'm here humbly um, learning from you all as well today. Thank you. Thanks so much, everyone, for your really um, poignant and powerful uh, introductions. Um, so to, to start the discussion off, um, thought it'd just be it'd be good to get um just an idea of uh okay exactly what the the ICJ case is and um perhaps even before that uh what is the International Court of Justice what is the ICJ um and what does it do what's its purpose um so maybe yeah maybe we start off with that um you know broader question of yeah what what is what is the ICJ um so anyone feel free to to jump in. Um, maybe Ruba, um, you might be uh, be able to start us off. So um, the ICJ is a representative. So it's made up of uh, fifteen judges who are appointed um, by the oh my gosh the United Nations General Assembly, um, and they are supposed to be a representation of the world. 
essentially. And so they try to take judges from all over the world and uh, make it so that, you know, at the moment there's a Somali judge, there's someone from Lebanon, there's someone from China and Russia. And so they try to have uh, judges that represent what the world would look like. Um, so the International Court of Justice basically has two, two responsibilities or has two roles. The first is to settle legal disputes between states. And when I use the word states, I mean countries in Australian terminology. Um, and then the other thing that they uh, do is have advisory opinions. And an example of an advisory opinion is the 2004 opinion on the legality of the separating or dividing wall in in Palestine and, and you know um, Israel. So that they're basically the the things that they do. And uh, the ICJ is now hearing this case. Uh, uh, you know, in it's South Africa versus Israel, um, and South Africa is intervening on behalf of Palestine or the Palestinian people. Um, and their their role in this in the next couple of weeks is to look at whether there is a real risk of genocide being committed, and to if so, to provide um, interim provisions or injunctive relief, as we would call it in Australia. Um, Sarah, did you want to jump in? I mean, yes, this is probably pretty boring, but maybe I'll just speak to like the important um, parts and to add to what Ruba said, obviously, um, which was just essentially that, yes, the ICJ is uh, the main judicial body or considered as such uh, main judicial body of the UN and was actually established in the wake of World War II. So that's, you know, the context for you. Um, for those who want to know uh, where the part of the sort of jurisdiction for the case that we are seeing right now comes from, it's actually from a 1948, uh, so first, again, post-World War II convention that was ratified after the Holocaust, which made genocide a crime under international law and therefore gave the ICJ the authority to determine whether states have committed it. Um, I think the thing that's most important here to note, and we can also elaborate further, is that the court's rulings, um, though they are legally binding, enforcing um, the enforcement of those rulings can be tricky. And so, um, you know, essentially the rulings can be ignored. Uh, we saw that in um, 2022 when Russia ignored uh, an order to cease its war against Ukraine. And so I think, uh, yeah, th that's something that we will probably discuss a little bit uh, further. Uh, but ultimately, the other thing to note is that, for example, the um, ICJ is distinct from the International Criminal Court, which uh, actually tries individuals, you know, not states who are accused of violating um, laws, you know, including war crimes and genocide. But interestingly, neither Israel nor the US recognize the ICC's jurisdiction. And in the ICJ's case, they're only bound really by customary law, according to international consensus. Um, Ruba mentioned the ICJ case, um, which I think uh, really is to say that this isn't the first time we're seeing Israel at the ICJ, uh, but the 2004 opinion was an advisory one on, on the wall as well. Um, not much more to add, I think, for kind of like a basic primer on the ICJ, but those are, those are the things to note. I, I do think amazingly, Sarah, is that the ICJ essentially found that that wall was illegal under international law. And yet Israel completed its, you know, building that wall anyway. Um, and so 
you know, it's the while these decisions are legally binding, they're, you know, as Sarah said, they're not enforceable. And we don't know what the consequences are if someone who, you know, how, what the, what the legal consequences for that nation is, is really determined by other nations. It's not determined by the ICJ. So, you know, it's, it's a watch this space when we find out what the um, decision is kind of situation. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen um, a couple of days ago, even um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu coming out and saying, like, no one's going to no one's going to stop us in this assault, including, um, you know, explicitly mentioning The Hague. So, um, yeah. Um, but thanks. Thanks so much for, yeah, just, um, yeah, summarizing exactly what the ICJ is and giving us the, the necessary context um, for this case. Um, so can, can we dig a bit more into um, this current case now then and just kind of explain like its broad outline, um, you know, why South Africa has brought it to the ICJ um, and, and you know, what exactly um, the, the sort of contents of the, the, the case are. Um, I have to keep answering <laughs> the really dry legal responses. I have lots of opinions. Um, all right, so let's set some of the grounds, I suppose, for the case. So um, like Roba said, the hearings are what we consider provisional measures to actually stop what is happening in Gaza or the conditions in Gaza from worsening as the case progresses. So um, we are not expecting, uh, you know, to to hear about the actual case on genocide. That could take years. But right now, the provisions themselves could take uh, usually uh, between a few days and a few weeks. So we, you know, we could hear any moment now on what on what the court uh, has decided on those provisions. And to sum up, um, what the sort of the South African case is. Um, the lawyers argued that obviously they started with, you know, the significant death toll that um, Israeli, Israeli forces uh, have killed. Uh, 23,200 Palestinians was the number quoted and approximately 70% of those who were um, killed are women and children. Uh, the other thing that I think is um, really crucial to their case is the, the fact that they argued that Israeli forces were often aware that the bombing would cause significant civilian casualties, meaning that they were disproportionate. And so Palestinians were being killed. Um, examples were given in what were declared safe zones, mosques, hospitals, schools, refugee camps. As we know, I mean, just before jumping on this call, we saw a Nasser hospital being um, viciously attacked. It is the last standing, you know, major hospital barely functioning and um, was just being um, bombarded. Uh, just a couple of hours ago. So we know that um, there's a lot, obviously, of documentation around that, around the fact that there are 60,000 Palestinians who've been wounded and maimed um, beyond the death toll as well, that families have been separated, that there is a high number of displaced Palestinians amounting to 85%. Uh, we've also, um, well, the South African uh, team also alleged that the uh, actions as a result of the Israeli forces' direct actions, there was um, humanitarian, you know, crucial humanitarian aid being prevented from reaching people in Gaza. Uh, that uh, you know, Israel cut off the water supply. Obviously, distribution of food, aid, medical supplies have all been um, obstructed, and so. In arguing all of these critical points and showing, um, again, the denial of adequate humanitarian assistance, South Africa was really able to um, 
I suppose, show all the elements of um, what's happening right now and, and why to strengthen their case. I think those were some of the strongest points in terms of what was actually happening on the ground. And then to, to on the flip side, they also actually brought in and introduced speeches by Israeli political leaders and um, soldiers who are, you know, they brought in testimony from soldiers, some of those like terrible TikTok videos that you see of soldiers mocking Palestinians and, and advocating for the complete erasure of Gaza. And so uh, one of those um, quotes, I think, that they brought into the case was, as you would all remember, um, the uh, reference to Palestinians as human animals that need to be eliminated. So all of this was used as evidence of incitement to genocide. Um, and so uh, I think what I'll end on is, uh, unless anyone else has anything to add, is that um, through this, South Africa argued that it, clearly Israeli forces have demonstrated an intent to commit genocide and that there should be an interim order made to stop it. Um, I think I saw a question about what are the interim provisions being sought. And my understanding, um, Sarah, maybe if uh, um, you want to add to this, but my understanding is the immediate uh, provision sought or the immediate estoppel is to stop the ongoing aggressions in Gaza immediately. Um, and then the other two things are to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza free-flowing without restrictions as they have been currently, and then to provide updates and reports so that Israel provides updates and reports on what they're doing to allow those two measures um, uh, during the heat or during this trial. Perfect. Thanks so much. And um, yeah, something else um, that, that you pointed out in your um, introduction, Ruba, is the, um, is the significance of South Africa um, being the ones to, uh, to bring this case. Um, so I guess, yeah, why, and yeah, you, you touched on it, Ruba, but um, I'm wondering if, um, and I might go to, to Amy first for this question, um, if, if you like, Amy, like, what is the significance of South Africa um, being the ones to, to bring this case to the ICJ? I think Amy said, uh, Ruby Wharton said, you know, from from our invasion day to your Nakba, from, you know, South Africa's apartheid to Palestine's um, apartheid, you know, Desmond Tutu said that, in his opinion, this is worse than South African apartheid, what he's seeing happen in um, Palestine and Israel. So, you know, the idea is that this ongoing aggression, it's significant because it's, it's you know, Israel often says, oh, you know, you don't, or, or people who support Israel say, oh, go, go learn your history, go, you know, do your research. This is not apartheid. It's, you know, um, racist to call it so. And then you've got the country that, that gave segregation a name. So it was South Africa that gave segregation the name apartheid. Um, and, you know, it, and it is to the, the state of being apart, which, you know, in Afrikaans, that's what it means. Um, and so it's it's quite significant, in my opinion, historically, that the country that created apartheid or gave it the name is the one bringing this application and saying this is an apartheid state and it needs to be you know um, addressed. These issues need to be addressed. I think from a legal perspective, uh, when I think about the significance of this case, in terms of jurisdiction, I think the Gambia and Myanmar case um, that they cited in the application, in South Africa's application, is actually quite significant in that they set the scene 
for a third party state to intervene on behalf of an oppressed peoples. It was Gambia that did that and said, you know, um, the jurisdiction of the court or, or our, it is our, our obligation to intervene on behalf of this third party um, because we are signatories to the UN Convention Against Genocide and therefore we have to intervene and stop it. And South Africa is using that precedent to bring this case. Um, I don't know how the ICJ will rule, but if the ICJ says, you know, agrees with Israel and believes that this is a unispute, not a dispute, um, it, it will again create a new precedent and the ICJ will have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to, to separate this case from the case of Gambia and Myanmar. So it, it's really a watch this space and really a quite a significant moment in history. But then from a non-legal perspective, um, this case, you know, uh, is really significant for Palestinians who have been screaming into the void and into the abyss, hello, this is happening to us, please hear us. And for the first time in history, and I've spoken to so many of my Palestinian friends and, you know, um, family who say we felt seen, we felt heard at the ICJ. South Africa gave us a voice that we have been, you know, we have been seeking. And that's, to me, such a significant moment. I'm 42 years old. And ever since I was a child, I have been, you know, screaming Palestine. You know, at school I was doing it. In, in university, I don't think anyone who knows me, you know, the first thing I tell them is I'm Palestinian and we're an oppressed people. And it's because we need to be seen and we need to be heard. And I feel like um, South Africa gave us that voice. Yeah, you you touched on it a bit there, Ruba, but I'm I'm wondering if um if uh you all could um just go into a bit more detail now about your kind of your own reflections um on on the case so far. Um like what have you been struck by in the in the case? Um or or what questions are you still kind of left with? Um and yeah, including also any reflections on um yeah, possible outcomes of the case. Um yeah, maybe maybe over to you, uh, Sarah. Thanks, Jamal. So maybe I'll start with the enforcement question then, and I will, uh, yeah, uh, offer my reflections. I think the most obvious one, uh, you know, a gap in potential gap that we need to be prepared for is the one that I mentioned earlier and that Rivera also mentioned around the lack of enforceability. And so the problem is when you have, you know, powerful countries that uh, can and have the full, uh, uh, have the the option and opportunity and power to just ignore a ruling and they think that they're above the law and that the UN bodies um, don't apply, the, you know, don't apply to them, then little can be done to enforce that. And it'll come as no surprise to you that we have seen this time and time again, whether it's with Security Council resolutions or with cases like, um, for example, in 1986, in the case of Nicaragua versus the US, um, it, you know, as a matter of fact, the U.S. at the time indicated that it would respect the decision of the court. And when the court found against it, uh, the U.S. decided to ignore the decision. So um, clearly, uh, you know, there is a pattern here for settler uh, settler colonies, you know, for Israel and its supporters. Um, I believe that finding a finding that might be made against it by the court would likely be something they dispute and potentially ultimately ignore. Um, the only way to enforce an ICJ order is through the vote of a vote of the UN Security Council. 
uh, just to give people that uh, context. And so when you have a UN Security Council whose five permanent members include the US, knowing that they could veto any such measure, well, I think the 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 outcome is is going to be pretty obvious. Uh, I I was in doing my research. Uh, I found that Secretary of State Antony Blinken called the case meritless, which is obviously not true. But for him to call it meritless just indicates to us where the U.S. stands, and probably we could have guessed that even without that that comment. And so I don't mean to sound cynical, but I guess it's ultimately what I said earlier, in that I never expected our liberation to be. Um, you know, found in these systems that are incidentally, you know, systems established and created by powers and interests that are directly complicit now in, you know, in um, what is happening to Palestine and elsewhere. So they are directly complicit and they are always going to um, maintain a world order that suits their own interests and serves their agendas ultimately. Uh, having said that, um, well, and then I guess I should say, you know, uh, being on this, uh, you know, on uh, in in this colony on stolen land, we understand the limitations of the law, and we understand that it can be and is continually used as a tool to serve colonial, you know, purposes. Um, yes, but having said that, I think uh, it is as Rubas said. I, I, you know, I've been struggling with this. Um, because I do see how symbolically powerful it is to have South Africa, I mean, who has more moral authority than them to stand in solidarity and to see so much, so many um, formerly colonized uh, states also uh, throw their support behind the case as well. Um, the fact that uh, I was talking to Randa, who couldn't make it today, and she was just saying how powerful it was for her dad who is older than the state of israel and all our elders and family members to hear um the evidence documented and so you know firmly asserted on a global stage in such a way that has never happened before especially when we have seen israel you know continue to operate with impunity um continue to uh, you know uh, evade accountability on all fronts and to have that has been really um significant i think for people's morale as well so I do want to acknowledge that I think it is possible to see that, but to also, you know, um, accept that it it does have its limits ultimately. And, and it is a tactic. It is not the only tactic. It is a tactic to the same end. Um, and we, you know, we, we try that, but we try other things as well as, as we have been doing. And ultimately, it is Palestinian-led resistance that will liberate us. Thanks so much, Sarah. Did you want to add any um, any further reflections as well, Ruba? Oh, just the love heart. <laughs> you know, yeah. like absolutely. You know, without us, not us. You know, uh, that that's that's the motto um, I used to hear a lot when I worked in. Um, you know, worked with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander clients, and when I worked with people with disabilities and mental illness. You know, without us, not us, and. Um, Often, you know, it's not up to us to make decisions or determinations. It's up to the individuals who are who have that lived experience and who are, who have, you know, um, lived through that trauma. And so I completely agree. Yes, this is a tactic. And ultimately, you know, the end of apartheid in South Africa, while they used the law, exactly, it was just a tactic. The, the, the boycotts of South Africa boycotting the South African apples and boycotting cricket made it difficult for 
South African government to maintain its um, uh, ongoing apartheid regime because it made it expensive because they weren't getting the income they used to. But at the same token, it was that active resistance by the ANCs, um, you know, by the ANC at the time that ultimately led to the apart like to apartheid coming to an end. Because, you know, um, based on my historic research, 5% of South Africa was white at the time. And it was 5% of the population exerting this extreme violent uh, colonial ideology on, on, on a huge number of people. So once you, you take away their resources, you take away their ability to maintain that, um, that, that violence. So I completely agree with you. Yeah, something that I wanted to pick on, pick up on something that um, you mentioned, Sarah, about, um, I don't know, uh, being kind of wary of, um, uh, I guess, being cautious about what this ICJ case uh, will do for the um, struggle for Palestinian liberation, um, like, kind of trying to hold the, you know, the, the immense, uh, you know, the the hope of it and the you know the symbolic power of it at the same time as um you know not not investing absolutely everything uh in it um and making sure um you know we're not losing sight of the importance of um Palestinian-led um grassroots struggle and of course international solidarity with that struggle as well um so yeah just wondering if um if anyone wants to sort of dig into that a bit that sort of dynamic a bit further um yeah that's okay I just wanted to ask um maybe it's worth spending a minute on um so-called Israel's defense um because it is I, I was surprised at how laughable it was um I think you know first and foremost I just want to remind everyone that Israel said that South Africa is criminally complicit with Hamas and I found that obviously quite absurd and I saw a meme today online earlier that was just like how about Israel tell us who isn't Hamas because clearly everybody in the whole world that sides with Palestine is Hamas just tell us who is not Hamas that'll make our lives a lot easier um but uh you know we have to I suppose we have to laugh is a coping mechanism these times but uh the the I think the bulk of the defense um was actually uh quite weak. And so the right to self-defense, uh, which was the first point that Israel made, uh, arguing that, you know, or that their team made was that, you know, Hamas's attack on October 7 is what started the Gaza war and that Israel has a right to defend itself under international law, um, which I will come back to. Uh, the second argument they made was around the genocidal intent. So in response to, uh, you know, or I suppose what the South African team preempted by, um, giving examples and citing a lot of people in influential positions, leaders, elected leaders, representatives, politicians, and soldiers on the ground, um, you know, showing the statements that they made. In response to that, the Israeli legal team said that the, you know, the accusations um, that Tel Aviv has an inherent intent to destroy the Palestinian people are based on random assertions, um, and that was uh, all taken out of context. Um, so quite, again, I, I found uh, personally quite a weak uh, response. Um, and then I think uh, the other, the last one uh, from a substantive point of view was around responding to the allegations of, you know, actual, the, the crimes committed, actual genocidal actions, which include um, 
the indiscriminate killings that I mentioned earlier, the disproportionate ones of civilians. And so the legal team claimed that Hamas was using civilians as human shields uh, and that uh, Israeli occupying forces or troops had in every attempt, you know, um, tried to uh, minimize civilian harm. And one example is, is of course, the one that always comes up is the leafletting, because it's like, we'll leaflet you, we'll let you know, but then A, we'll give you nowhere to go, and B, we will still bomb you anyway, and bomb those safe zones um, as well. So yes, a very minimal grounds. The last, uh, I, I, and I think their most, their, their potentially strongest uh argument is actually a technical one. And I think Roba touched on this earlier, and it's around the jurisdiction. And so the Israeli team claimed that uh, South Africa um, hasn't attempted to resolve the dispute prior in the same way that, for example, here in a domestic legal system, you wouldn't go to court necessarily straight away. You'd have to have court-mandated mediation or steps to resolve the dispute before you um, seek, you know, uh, any sort of remedy in the court or before you, you seek that as, a, as an appropriate channel. And so they they claim that, you know, there had been no attempts to resolve the, the dispute, um, you know, which is a requirement for the court to have jurisdiction. Uh, they asserted that South Africa gave them a few days notice, rejected an offer of dialogue as well about the genocidal claims before applying to the court. So interestingly, it's not the substantive arguments, I think, that are the strong ones, but actually that that technical one, um, which might be an issue. And again, you know, for me, uh, a, a perfect, you know, exhibit A of how uh, the, the technicalities can really fail us in these contexts of where power, there's a gross power asymmetry and gross injustice is happening. Um, I want to just very quickly talk about the right to self-defense because it's obviously a very common talking point, Zionist talking point. Um, and what I will say to that is that, you know, the right to self-defense or Israeli Israel's right to self-defense is a fallacy because putting aside even the settler colonial framework in which we all know should apply and should operate, it's that defense, that that claim to a self-defense is not available to Israel with respect to its dealings um, with real or perceived threats that come out from Gaza or the West Bank because Israel under international law is an occupying power. And as an occupying power, it has the responsibility to protect civilians. Um, under international law, uh, AP1, uh, Palestinians, uh, that is additional protocol one, Palestinians have a right to resist and even engage in armed struggle. And that right is affirmed in the context of the right of self-determination and of all peoples under foreign and colonial rule. And you know, Palestinians, we have tried everything. We have spoken, we have written, we have negotiated at the UN, uh, you know, Oslo, we organized, we campaigned, we've BDSed, we've marched, you know, the, the March of Return, the largest um, peaceful protests in besieged Gaza's history, you know, and most of the world failed to pay attention, while Israel, again, with complete impunity, shot the kneecaps of pro protesters and killed hundreds and injured thousands of people because they just expect us to die, right? And so, this is this is the this is the double standard that we are seeing. Israel causes war crime after war crime is responsible for violence for perpetrating an apartheid regime, and has not been held accountable. So for me, these are these are these, this is the context in which we are coming from and operating in, and we really need to be clear and unequivocal um, about about this. Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, my understanding is that right to resist 
and the uh, you know the de definition of Israel being an occupying power was was uh, reaffirmed as uh, as late as 2004 in that um, decision in relation to the wall. So you know we have an ICJ decision confirming you know the Palestinian right to resistance and confirming that Israel is an occupying power of the Palestinian people. Um, so you know like this is not going to be a new decision that the ICJ make if they say that you know Israel need you know if they place provisional um, uh, measures in relation to this current aggression against the Palestinian people in Gaza and the West Bank because they've already made similar determinations. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, Ruby, if you don't mind, um, if I ask you a question as well, um, which is open for, for others to answer too, but, um, you know, something that's come up in everyone's, um, everyone's discussions uh, has been, you know, drawing the connections uh, between, um, yeah, settler colonialism in Palestine and settler colonialism here. So, I'm just, uh, yeah, wondering if if you have any reflections on the significance of this um, case brought by South Africa specifically um, in mm -hmm. the context of, you know, continuing colonization um, and racial violence uh, on this this continent here. Um, and mm -hmm. if you know, there's any lessons that we can draw from the from this case, um, yeah, that that can sort of be applied in in terms of resisting settler colonialism here. Mm, most definitely. Well, I, I've i grown up hearing many of my mentors and elders like Uncle Dale Ruska, my own father, Michael Mansell, um, and many, many other First Nations veteran warriors of the likes, talk about taking our cases to the ICJ. And in all honesty, hearing hearing Sarah and all of you guys and watching it all roll out seeing Germany come to Israel's defense like it's there's a bunch of you know like to quote Chelsea Wadigo Dr Chelsea here on this one is cope to the essence however this the 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 importance of resistance remains prevalent here the 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 power of people who have nothing and have nothing to ourselves or have no options or resources or avenues to take and when we do take it there we're left we're left more wounded than what we walk what we walked in there with although i guess the reflection is obviously how do we expect other colonial settler states to to relate to us to have morality to have to have a moral compass to in order for them to redistribute their power and their wealth to enable other people's oppressed people's martyred people's to live their lives self-determined on their sovereign lands in the ways that their old peoples had lived hundreds of thousands of years before this moment in this time i guess seeing south africa take up the ball is the most heartwarming thing amongst all of this and I guess being a Murray from Queensland, knowing that the apartheid regime was birthed here in colonial minds in the state of so-called Queensland is an even more an intri intricate layer to, con to consider amongst it, everything. Is that 
resistance is the only thing that we can do and international solidarity is the only thing that we can do. We have to keep on turning up and we have to keep on encouraging our own workspaces, our own local governments, our own, the, the Zionists in our own communities. We actually have to target them here on this continent as people who are standing in pro with, for Palestine. The, the ICJ was something that we, I, I, I witnessed and hoped, and I'm really, really hoping that it will turn around and that the UN will be able to action the outcomes that come from this convention. However, what, it's like, what, what more can we do? I, I think now that we're coming on to 226 odd years of invasion here in this lands and coming up to invasion day, the only thing that I can think to want to do is to set everything on fire, which is a bit of a, like that, that's the level of frustration that we're all at. And when we say burn the colony, it's, it's the literal feeling of the heart because these avenues that we have absolutely do not, do not see us. They see our, it's emotional porn, it's trauma porn. And they just see us for being oppressed peoples and we will always be oppressed peoples. And I guess here in a First Nations, from a First Nations perspective here in this continent, I guess around this time of year, we always hear, we always hear, we'll get over it. Yes, that, that get over it comment. And I guess from the colonial eye that we, typically speaking first nations people have some kind of access to education have some kind of access to health have some kind of access to food and water however that's not what that's forced assimilation is not the positive outcome here and i guess one thing that we that first nations people should be doing is push pressuring this government to actually make a home for palestinian people here in these lands and that I'm rambling a lot now because I'm just left with fuck hope. I'm really sorry to swear, but I'm really left with fuck hope. And all that we can do and all that First Nations people can do here is just offer our homes and our lands and our resources because that's the exact thing that we have left after 200 odd years of colonization. And I'm, uh, is Amy back on now? Did I just, Amy just popped back in. Maybe she can finish this sentence finish this question off a bit better than I can. Um, but I, honestly, it's very jarring. It's a very jarring time. All that we can do is resist and that we continue to resist and that we continue to make, make homes for each other in our own sovereign lands. And hopefully we can, hopefully our demonstrations will continue to grow. Yeah. Um, I think the power of what we've seen with um, Palestinian and Aboriginal solidarity at the moment is how much a threat it is to the current um, discourse, to um, what is currently happening. Um, it really has been a threat and we've seen these coordinated, you know, campaigns to show that this really enormous feeling of black solidarity with Palestine is just a minority view. It's not. I mean, I've been seeing um, grassroots Aboriginal solidarity with Palestine for a very long time. Um, and because we see that in each other, and that's what South Africa has shown on an international level and why it was so powerful to see. And I remember watching, not seeing it in the Australian media, not seeing it replicated anywhere else except 
you know, through seeing Palestinian people writing about ICJ and watching it Al Jazeera, I remember watching it and seeing the South African legal case and it was nothing that we hadn't seen before. That's what, I mean, obviously there was all these legal um, arguments that were being made, but when they were showing the actual evidence, I was really struck by the fact that actually we have been seeing this for a hundred days in real time. The genocide is being broadcast in real time. And yet we still are being almost, you know, Palestinians and people standing with Palestinians are being collectively gaslit as well as if um, these crimes of genocide are not actually happening. And so I think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about bearing witness as well. And what can we do when we just watch through the phone and we're just seeing these continual atrocities, what we can do? Because it's not enough to bear witness anymore, is it? It's not, it's not enough to just watch and almost consume um, these cases, these horrific um, cases, you know, uh, horrific um, atrocities. It's just not enough anymore. And um, I think that's the only thing we can is just continue to resist in every single way possible, led by Palestinian people, following the example of South Africa and um, Yemen and everything like that, um, and just do whatever we can. Sorry if that's just um, all around the place. Um, but yeah, I think the solidarity we're seeing from blackfellas and oppressed people across the world is a real threat to the current imperialist colonial order worldwide. And that includes the corporate legacy media who are really, you know, complicit in everything that is happening in the propaganda and the lies, and they refuse to be held accountable at all. So we have to help hold them accountable in whatever capacity. That was We Charge Genocide. I hope you mob enjoyed that yarn and I look forward to, to yarning with you next week. And I hope that you guys stick around for the rest of 2024. Let's talk Black Power. No more whispering in our mind. Let's talk Monday to Friday at 9am no on AAA Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au, proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.